This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 11th of June 2022 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Today, our regular guest Simon Brook will join me to review the day's papers. Then, Andrew Muller will recap the week. We learned that the people of Britain were able to rise to the occasion of Queen Elizabeth II's Platinum Jubilee in the proper British style, i.e. nibbling mediocre snack foods in the rain while pretending they can stand their neighbours. We'll also get a check-in from Salone del Mobile in Milan and, ahead of the prestigious Women's Prize for Fiction, we'll have an insight into which books by women are most read by men. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. Up first, a look at what's making the news. Ukraine's pleaded to Western countries for faster deliveries of weapons as better-armed Russian forces pounded the east of the country and for humanitarian support to combat growing outbreaks of deadly diseases. In the south, the mayor of Mariupol, reduced to ruins by a Russian siege, said sanitation systems were broken and corpses were rotting in the streets with outbreaks of dysentery and cholera. Britain's government overcame a legal challenge to its controversial policy to begin deporting asylum seekers to Rwanda as the High Court dismissed campaigners' attempts to win an injunction and said the first flight could leave next week. Charities and a trade union had launched a challenge earlier this week against the government's plan to send asylum seekers to the East African nation. And a Bolivian court found former President Janine Anez guilty on Friday of orchestrating a coup that brought her to power during a 2019 political crisis. She was sentenced to 10 years in prison. A former military commander and an ex-police general were also convicted. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Well, a a coup in Bolivia, was there one in America? I mean, this is what we're looking at in the papers first this morning. Simon, Simon Brook, welcome uh, back to the programme. Thank Uh, you. The January the 6th insurrection, the storming of the capital, of course, we had that televised hearing this week. It's all over the papers. It is indeed, yeah. And the New York Times, as you would imagine, goes into it in some detail, um, exploring the the revelations that we've seen so far. And um, uh, looking really, I mean, I think one of the, the most important stories that comes out of it, something that's really emerging, is that actually key figures around uh, Donald Trump never believed his lie about the stolen Uh, election. And the New York Times reports uh, findings from the committee that Mike Pompeo, who's then Secretary of State at the time, and Stephen Mnuchin, who was the Treasury Secretary, uh, discussed the possibility of invoking the 25th Amendment. And this would have required the Vice President and the majority of the Cabinet to agree that the President could no longer fulfil his duties. and, uh, and, And they would then begin a complex process of removal from office. And various conversations between Cabinet members and senior officials about this idea have been explored. Um, So this is the first of of six planned public hearings and uh, as the New York Times uh, reports, the committee presented a detailed case against Donald Trump and the others and and it went on uh, as, as the 
hearings have sort of kicked off to uh, signal its plans to use this discussion about the 25th Amendment to show not only that the chaos Mr Trump had set off by helping to stoke the riot, but also how little confidence those around him had in his ability to be president. And never said a word. I mean, appeared to completely publicly support him. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? And I think that that's a good indication of really what was to come in terms of the that the stranglehold that Trump has on uh, the Republican Party. Because you'll remember shortly after this happened, Mitch McConnell and various other uh, senior members within the party condemned Donald Trump uh, for this action and were very critical of his supporters, distanced themselves and the bulk of the Republican Party from it. And then months later, as they put their finger up and tested which way the wind was going, uh, they changed their mind very much and have been very, 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 either very quiet on it or sort of generally supportive. Liz Cheney's been an absolute star, the uh, one of only two Republicans on this investigating committee. Uh, of course, she's known for being anti-Trump, but she's been very, very strong in what she's been saying. She has. I think this, I, I think she's a, a really tragic figure here. As you say, she, she's one of only two Republicans that has dared to criticise uh, Donald Trump. And let's just remember, D- uh, Liz Cheney is not, you know, some... Uh, you know, she, has, she is Republican royalty in many ways. Mm. You know, her father... Dick Cheney was vice president under George Bush, a previous Republican president, also known as probably the most powerful VP ever, and he was defence secretary under Bush's father, George H.W. Bush. And, yeah, her courage in speaking out on this and uh, agreeing to give this these investigations uh, uh, sort of the, 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 val- the validity they need of being bipartisan is incredibly important. The tragedy is, of course, that um, she faces elections uh, at the congressional elections in November and the real question is about whether she will actually return to Washington. Mm. Although, of course, uh, the, the November midterms are going to be, I mean, hugely interesting after all of this. They, well, they will, but this is the problem, I suppose, isn't it? What what effect will this have on Republican voters? Will this real sort of airing of exactly the shocking things that happen, the cynicism, Trump's lack of connection with reality, if you like, in terms of the fact that uh, so many of his close supporters were really, really critical of him and really obviously concerned about what he was doing, will that turn Republican voters off him or will it actually encourage them to support him, whatever. And also you've got to think of the what's the alternative, what state are the Democrats in, Joe Biden's approval ratings, the state of the economy and things. So there's so much uh, at, at stake here. And there's also actually, I think, an interesting piece in The Guardian, uh, Jonathan Friedland, j- just reiterates, I suppose, the fact that these hearings are not just a sort of, uh, you know, something for politicos to, to pour over and journalists to enjoy and, uh, you know, in a sort of revelation about the sheer horror of what happened on that day. But uh, Friedland, in his piece, lists the actions that Republicans across the, the states are taking to, as he describes it, to remove the guardrails that keep American democracy on track. So, for instance, last year, at least 19 Republican-ruled states uh, passed measures that were supposed to tackle apparent so-called voter fraud. But in fact, of course, as he says, a really voter suppression, making it harder for low-income and minority Americans to cast their ballot. You know, there's more uh, more Republicans, even those Stop the Steal Trump loyalists who are in positions who will now oversee how votes are counted and certified. More state uh, le- assemblies will be put in charge of the process rather than access to court. So 
the point is, I suppose, that what's happening outside Washington across the US are changes are being made, which would actually mean that if something like this happens at the next election, and it's very possible that Trump will be the Republican candidate, or at least there will be a Trumpite candidate, those uh, checks and balances that prevented him stealing the election last time will no longer be in place. Very worrying. Uh, right, let us cross to Andrew Muller to find out what else we learnt this week. We learned this week that the Boris Johnson era of British politics is not over quite yet. On the basis that he may be the only thing standing between us and the beginning of the Liz Truss era, let's all try being a bit careful about what we wish for. Well, quite. We learned that sufficient numbers of Johnson's fellow Conservative MPs were fed up with him to force a vote of confidence in his leadership but that insufficient numbers of said cohort were willing to show him the United Kingdom's most famous door. We learned that such rebellion as there was, however, it was quashed 148 votes to 211, was not the result of any genuine disquiet about the Prime Minister having apparently presided during the months of Covid-19 lockdown over Britain's hottest night spot, but was due to a sinister conspiracy. (laughs) And we learned this from no less an authority than Nardine Dorries, who is Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport, which for overseas listeners is like making a bucket with a hole in it, Secretary of State for carrying water, soup and very small non-liquid objects like sunflower seeds or something. But anyone who says that this isn't being coordinated and isn't being uh, organised behind the scenes, I'm afraid, is not telling you the truth. This is a very well-organised campaign. So we learned that, despite mountainous evidence to the contrary, it turns out that the Conservative Party is capable of organising something. Thanks for coming out. Try the fish. We learned actually quite a lot from Nardine Dorries this week, and as this may be the first time any such utterance has been legitimately utterable, let's enjoy ourselves. Ahead of the vote of confidence, Dorries attempted to forestall any big ideas about succeeding Johnson, which might have been gestating in the head of Jeremy Hunt, former Foreign Secretary and more pertinently to the theme of Dorries' vituperations, former Health Secretary. Dorries fired up her Twitter account, which rarely ends any better than a goat-going skateboarding might, and loosed quite the broadside at Hunt, which contained, among other accusations, the following, as will now be read by Monocle24's ill-considered vengeance desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Your pandemic preparation during six years as health secretary was found wanting and inadequate. So we learned from a member of this government's own cabinet that this government's pandemic preparation was wanting and inadequate. And we're sure that Nardine Dorries is every bit as furious with whichever idiot was immediately preceding and during the pandemic under Secretary of State at the Department of Health with responsibility for, among other briefs, patient safety. Let's just look up who this unforgivable bungler was. Come on, let's have a sound effect of some sort of directory being leafed through. Good grief, you'll never guess, blow me down, etc. It was Nadine Dorries. All right, don't oversell it. Nobody likes an overseller.
We also learned that Boris Johnson was not the only occupant of a key post in the United Kingdom's constitutional apparatus to continue reigning long over us. Well done. We learned that the people of Britain were able to rise to the occasion of Queen Elizabeth II's Platinum Jubilee in the proper British style, i.e. nibbling mediocre snack foods in the rain while pretending they can stand their neighbours. We learned, however, that actual members of the royal actual family had other priorities, as the Duke and Duchess of Sussex generally found other places to be due, apparently, to some sort of palace feud. And here now follows a complete list, in alphabetical order, of every sane person who cares in the slightest about any of it. And we learned that the Duke of York, Prince Andrew, recently in the news for paying 12 million quid to a woman he had never even met, as so many of us so very often do, was unable to take up the prominent role in the celebrations which he had very definitely been assigned due to a deeply, unfortunately timed case of COVID-19, which is a thing that assuredly, absolutely, actually happened. So we've learned, maybe if we're being hilariously optimistic, a lesson in the merits of constitutional monarchy, in that we have witnessed both the hurly-burly of democracy and been reminded of the serene, if faintly absurd, solidity of the crown. And we've learned, perhaps, to sympathise somewhat with Boris Johnson, as who among us can ever be certain that 41% of our colleagues don't wish we clear off? <coughs> From Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Many thanks there to Andrew. Uh, and this is Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. Did you manage to avoid the Jubilee, Simon? <laughs> I got bullied into making a cake for it, Georgina. Can you, I, don't, I don't make cakes. How did that happen? I think some blue rinse lady twisted my arm or something. And so I managed to make a what looked like a cake and slip it onto the table next to some really spectacular pieces of patisserie, I must say. So, yeah, that was my contribution. What was the outcome of the Jubilee pudding competition? Do you know? I don't. I did. I missed that one. I think I there was a nationwide say. search. Oh, for a right, yes, pudding. that's right. It did actually taste quite nice. I have to say, one of those things that looks really nice, but I could never in a million years be bothered to make it. But it was something to do with meringue and lemon or lemoncello or something. But yeah, that sounds delicious if you can be bothered to make it, which I can't. <laughs> uh, of course, that was the celebrations of the Queen's seventy years on the throne, uh, and of course, Prince Charles is the person who comes next. And once he does, he's not going to be able to make his opinions known on anything political. Political. Uh, today, however, he's been very, very vocal in the papers. Now, this is all about the Home Office uh, sending uh, asylum seekers to Rwanda. Just run us through what the story is before we look at Charles's reaction. Yeah, so the idea is that um, the the government, Tory government, very concerned about the number of um, boats that arrive from across the Channel and arrive at Dover with uh, illegal immigrants. This has been a. This is really, according to the polls, really irked uh, Tory voters and a real determination we want to do something about it. So the government came up with a plan a few months ago to send uh, these people, instead of processing them in the UK, they would be flown 4,000 miles to Rwanda and the, and the processing would take place there. 
as you said in the headlines, uh, recently um, a group of charities and other organisations uh, took the government to court and uh, said, in the hope that this would be described as illegal, found to be illegal. In fact, the government has won its case now and it looks like the first deportations to Rwanda might take place as early as Tuesday this week. Uh, And let's just look at why this is a bad idea. Well, there are so many reasons why this is a bad idea. Um, it's it's reckoned it will cost more to do this than if you put them up at the Ritz Hotel in London. So uh, certainly for a government that is looking to make savings, that it doesn't make an awful lot of sense. Um, various organisations have condemned it as well. It's also caused some embarrassment, I think, to Rwanda because it's really put... Uh, and, and to Britain, but it's put the focus on human rights in Rwanda, which have been criticised, especially if you're an LGBT plus uh, asylum seeker, you really would be worried about going there. It's also caused some embarrassment as well between the British government and the Rwandan government um, because uh, the Rwanda is a member of the Commonwealth. And so uh, this sort of criticism that has been of this policy and people questioning whether it's fair and the international condemnation uh, that it has caused has really not put Rwanda in a good light as well. Because if you thought it was a bit bonkers for the British government to send asylum seekers 4,000 miles away. Why would the Rwandan government want to take part in this arrangement? So actually, uh, as I say, it hasn't been great for their PR either. Mm. Uh, And now this whole intervention by by the Prince of Wales. Yes. So uh, Prince Charles, um, as you know, is not uh, one to, to, to keep his thoughts to himself, unlike his mother, even though he has been quiet recently. And uh, as you said, he has made it clear that he wouldn't speak when he ascends to the on these controversial issues when he ascends to the throne. However, according to a lead story in The Times, he said that he's, quote, more than disappointed uh, at the policy, according to a source close to him. Um, And he thinks that the government's whole approach is appalling. Uh, Interestingly, Clarence House, the the prince's office and uh, and home, uh, his spokespeople said he didn't deny, didn't, sorry, didn't deny that Charles had opposed the policy. Um, but uh, and, and restated that he remains politically neutral. But the fact that he didn't deny that he opposed the policy, I think, is uh, quite interesting, really, and uh, will be a source of uh, more embarrassment as well. It, I suppose what it does is it gives some of the uh, the Tory spin doctors an opportunity to say Prince Charles wishy-washy. What does he know? You know, we're really in touch with voters' concerns. Mm. Well, of course, if people are in any doubt about Rwanda's human rights record, there's a very good book. It's called Do Not Disturb. And it's written by Michaela Rong. Uh, she's written uh, many, many books. A, a previous one was called In the Footsteps of Mr. Kurtz, which is about the Congo. Right. Uh, and yeah. really interesting. Just yesterday, I was interviewing um, uh, Adam Hochschild, who who wrote King Leopold's Ghost. And of course, all of those. And, I mean, all connected. Yeah, absolutely. It? Back to Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Um, but I wonder, Simon, do you read books written by women? Yes, I do. Uh, I do, actually. Um, I mean, I have to say, I've read reports and surveys that show that men tend to read non-fiction. Apparently 90% of fiction or something is read by women. Well, hold that thought, because the Women's Prize for Fiction will be awarded next Wednesday, and the chair of the judges is Marianne Seagart. Now, she's the author of the best-selling book, The Authority Gap, and in the book, she discovers some really interesting statistics about male reading habits, and, galvanised by that, 
the Women's Prize has been running a campaign to encourage more men to read novels by women. And this has also sparked a lively debate on which novels by women are essential reading for men. So I actually have Marianne uh, on the line <laughs> right <a> now. <laughs> Marianne, good morning to you. Good morning. Um, your book, tell us about the stats about male reading habits. Yeah, so I asked Nielsen Data Research, who are the gurus of the book trade, to find out what percentage of the top 10 best-selling books by women and by men were read by each gender. And if you look at the top 10 best-selling female fiction authors, and, and this includes authors like Jane Austen and Margaret Atwood, as well as Jojo Moyes and Danielle Steele, only 19% of their readers are men. So that means 81% are women. But if you look at the top 10 best-selling male fiction authors, and that includes Charles Dickens and Tolkien, as well as you know, thriller writers like Lee Child and Stephen King, the split is much more even. So it's 55% men and 45% women, which suggests that women are quite happy to read books by men and by women, whereas men are much more likely to read books by men are much less likely to read books by women. And no, actually they don't make up, uh, women don't make up 90% of fiction readers. They make up only 64%. So that doesn't explain it. How extraordinary. And are men more likely to read nonfiction? Yes, they are more likely, more likely to read nonfiction. But of those who do read fiction, they gravitate very much, uh, you know, almost entirely towards fiction by men. And what we're saying is there's some fabulous fiction by women out there and we just want men to, to sample it and, and get hooked, which they probably will. I interviewed um, Richard Curtis, the filmmaker, about this and he, for his first 63 years, had read almost entirely novels by men. And come the first lockdown, he thought, oh, at last I'm going to have a chance to sit and read lots of books. And his daughter said to him, Dad, why didn't you read some novels by women for a change? Mm. So he groaned a bit, but said, okay. And uh, she suggested a list of mainly contemporary fiction by women. And he said, I am a complete convert. And he's become evangelical about it. Whenever a friend has a birthday, he takes presents of um, novels by women for his male friend to read. He says, I go into bookshops and say, why haven't you got more Anne Tyler on your shelves? Uh, I'm not sure he's ever going to read a book by man again. <laughs> um, so you ran a, a sort of survey at the Women's Prize for Fiction, ran this survey about the top 10 books by women that, that men enjoy. What, what were the results of that? Well, what, what it actually was, was we, we asked people to vote for recommendations of the books by women that they thought men should read and would enjoy. 20,000 people answered this call. And the winner was The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. Then we have To Kill a Mockingbird, Girl, Woman, Other, The Colour Purple, The Song of Achilles. These are all so well known, you probably don't even need the author. Mm. Half of a Yellow Sun, The Goldfish, Frankenstein, The Poisonwood Bible and The Vanishing Half in that order. So those are, as nominated by our readers, the 10 best books that men should read. And all we're saying is, you know, if you're a guy and probably not even deliberately, you have a look at your bookshelves or your Kindle and you realise actually most of the novels you're reading are by men, here is a fantastic place to start because each of these will blow your mind, frankly. Mm, mm. Well, of course, we are going to get another mind-blowing book come this Wednesday. In fact, we've already got a short list of mind-blowing books. Uh, the prize is actually announced on Wednesday. Uh, just tell us a little bit more about that, Marianne. Yes, well, we're judging it on Monday, so I can't tell you who the winner is. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't anyway, but I actually <laughs> can't. 
because we haven't yet decided. Um, they are an amazing book uh, selection of books. So six uh, books out of the 175 or so uh, that were submitted originally. So again, if you want to if you want to sample the best writing by women in English fiction writing by women in English this year, any one of those six will do. And they cover a fantastically broad range of topics from an aviator in Antarctic, female av aviator in the Antarctic to um, a woman who works in a clothes shop in Trinidad. Um, so they take place all over the world. One is narrated by a, a fig tree and another one by a book. So they are original, they are funny, they are sad. Uh, they are fantastic reading, all six of them. Excellent. So that's the Women's Prize for Fiction. It is judged, uh, or we will know the results of the judging on Wednesday evening. And Marianne Seagart is the chair of that judging panel. Marianne, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Uh, so interesting that she mentions uh, the Poisonwood Bible, because, of course, that book by Barbara Kingsolver is another book set in the Congo. So much great literature has, has come out of that, that one country. I think it's uh, quite extraordinary. The other thing that I learned about books this week, Simon, is um, I was at Hay a Festival last week and I went to a talk on book talk. Do you know what book talk is? I don't. Is it something to do with TikTok by any chance? It is. <laughs> oh, mate, so what, you get 30 seconds to summarise a book. And, yeah, so yeah. BookTok is, is TikTok yeah. about books. But what it's doing, it's completely revolutionising the way people, or who reads and who reads what. Because what you've got is a lot of youngsters out there talking up their YA favourite novels or whatever. Also, romance and science fiction doing incredibly well. So what you're seeing is suddenly these authors who have little known in the mainstream, but loved by, I don't know, 17-year-olds, uh, are suddenly selling millions and millions of books. And publishers are kind of looking at this going, what's going on? And that's what it is. It's book talk. So I'm learning how to do it. <laughs> I really, I mean, must, I'd love to, I will, I will follow you and, and have a look. But that's wonderful because what a wonderful way, I've got teenage nieces, I'll definitely mention it to them because what a wonderful way of getting them to, to actually read books. You know, if you choose a medium that they know and they enjoy whatever they're familiar with and then introduce them to another medium. That's brilliant. Yeah. Now, we're going to, for our last story, go to The mm, the Age from Melbourne. But that's, that's this is actually a TikTok story, isn't it? Well, it is, yeah, exactly. So there's a, a, a connection here and probably more what you'd associate um, with uh, TikTok was uh, essentially um, the, the, uh, there is a, uh, there is a, a TikTok... New York-based stylist called Alison Bornstein, who um, uh, went viral on, on TikTok because of what she calls the three-word method. So this, according to the Melbourne Age, is an elegant and simple strategy designed to help you defend your style. Essentially, the process involves, obviously, analysing the clothes that you wear most and finding three words to describe them. Uh, so examples, uh, Alexa Chung, the um, fashion influencer, she apparently is preppy, whimsical and edgy, according to uh, uh, Bornstein. Um, we were talking about royalty earlier. Princess Diana was sporty, demure and opulent. So um, you're going to now ask me what are the three words to describe me? And I have to say, I just can't think of any. I just thought this was fascinating because I spend so much time as in sort of journalism and communications trying to help brands, companies, organisations you know, hone down their, their message, their brand or whatever to three words. And I thought, what a brilliant idea to do it for your wardrobe because presumably... The idea is then you search for clothes that could be described as this and then yes. presumably it helps you find them and you find clothes you really like and we don't buy things we don't like and 
that end up in landfill. It's, it's just, am I being a, putting a bit of a gloss on that, or is that a? No, I think that's that's actually right. I would one of the words I'd use for you would be crisp. Crisp, right, thank you. <laughs> not that I've not crisp felt yeah. crisp felt down me, but <laughs> you're, you're crisp, and right, clean, and good. sort of. I don't know, shiny. <laughs> shiny, crisp, clean, shiny. Thank you. I really I'll do that. I, let's not go there when it comes to me, particularly me uh, on a Saturday morning. Smart, efficient, <laughs> demure. No, yeah. That's Diana. Yeah, sorry, wrong woman. Wrong woman, sorry. Wrong woman entirely. Um, uh, however, if I wear a piece of furniture. <laughs> okay. Right. That's a, easier then, isn't it? Yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah. It's comfortable. Yeah. Uh, that is by way of a very bad segue into our last piece of the programme. We're going off to Milan. The world's largest furniture fair, Salone del Mobile, has been running this week in Milan, and Monocle's team has obviously been there too. The Invisible Collection is an international retailer with French roots that sells custom handmade furniture and champions independent designers. Monocle's Marcus Hippie caught up earlier with the co-founder Anna Zawi to find out more about the business, its plans for Salonia and a new interesting collaboration. Let's have a listen. So the Invisible Collection is a baby growing, growing that moved from invisible to very visible now. We are an online business selling furniture designed by interior designers originally and now we move to designers as well to craft and to looking in some other pieces. The, the reason of this website is that originally those pieces were not visible to the most of the public. They were made and designed by interior designers for their own personal private project and if you wanted these pieces you had to do a project with that designer. And we felt that it was a shame that many, many of us were, were, couldn't see it, couldn't have access to it. And we thought that we could share it with the rest of the world. So basically the business was turned for private clientele and within less than a year we moved from private to professionals. Most of our clients now are 90% professionals. Tell us about your work championing young talent and independent designers. We love that. We are passionate about design. We are more and more passionate, and the more passionate we are, we dig into into designers, new, new designs, trends, etc. And we started with the great masters that we knew in France, and then England, Spain, Italy. But um, we love discovering new talent, the young talent, the young generation mounting that are extremely talented with less opportunity 10 years ago. Now it's open to everybody, to the rest of the world. And we are very, very proud to show them to the world, to promote their work, because we show them on our website, we promote them, newsletters, we have them work, we, we love to talk about their pieces in the legendary continuity of the, the people for where they were working for sometimes, and sometimes they just discover like that. We love craft as well, discovering them, and most of the time it's a great combination between talent in design and talent in craft, and we love to be exactly there. You talk a lot about discovering talent and finding talent. What does it take to actually find the right people and the right designers? What kind of, what kind of research are you conducting? Passion and curiosity to start with, because it's something we do naturally all the time. On Instagram, on TV, walking on the street, going to a place of a, or a friend place and constantly asking, where is it come from? Who is the designer? And then dig into it. 
through many, many images as well, because we are in the digital work and world, and uh, we process hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of images. And then our work is to find out who is the designer who worked at going to fairs all the time. The last two years were, was more about digital, and we are going back to, to fairs, so fabulous. Can you give me examples, any, any anecdotes of how you've found designers? Do you have any favorite stories of how you have discovered someone? Plenty, but for example, I was used to work with Valentina Pilar from Pierre Jovanovic. She did my apartment. We worked together. I enjoyed so much my time with her. And now she created her own brand in Portugal, doing her own designs. And uh, this is just at the beginning of the beginning, and I'm so happy to be there. I will be thrilled to collaborate with her. That's amazing. Tell me now what the Invisible Collection is doing here at Salone del Mobile. So it's good to be back uh, physically somewhere. First of all, we came, the whole team is here. We are launching uh, those lights with uh, Martina Mondadori. And, but first of all, we are here for a presence, looking everywhere, meeting all our interior designers who are showing something here. And launching with uh, Martina is a great, great thing because this is uh, Milan and it's her field. You mentioned Martina already and this, this collaboration with Cabana magazine. It's a very interesting collaboration with the magazine, as I mentioned already. How did that come about? We were at the beginning of Cabana magazine and we were, uh, we were friends with Martina. As I told you, I admire what she does. I thought that she found a niche and she created it uh, without fear. And she created this magazine, which is... Uh, how you say, one of a kind, with fabric, uh, full of collaboration, discovering all pieces that are vintage, that are unseen, and she digs into the history, which is fabulous, while the rest of the world is moving forward with contemporary things. We were going uh, into minimalism, and she brought back everything a little bit to maximalism. I think that the lifestyle for us is our common point. Lifestyle is very important. She brings a lifestyle. She is a, an inspiration for that. And this is what we are also trying to be on our side with different style. And I think uh, we can be complementary. And I love showing what she does and uh, promoting it. How would you introduce the, the lighting collection, that collaboration to, to our listeners? say that first of all light is very important to have it, it will fit to anyone but they are in brass they are sort of a sort of vintage look in a, in a way but I try to vision them in a different space quite minimalist white etc it looks like from the could be like the 30s 40s or even 70s in brass you know those things that were not discovered almost i think they are versatile and you could put them in a very elegant uh, dining room or something very heavy in fabric like she does uh, in the Gian Modagino uh, style I, I can't wait to have them and to position them a bit everywhere tell us more about how you would like to see people use those lights <laughs> You know, sometimes I learn from people, and this is what I like about my my job, is that we, we have an eye, we pick and choose, we curate our collection within the website, but then the client and interior designers, they pick and choose things that I will never think of, and they make combinations that are unique for themselves, and it's always a discovery, and I admire the result. I have some examples like that where I say, oh my God, what is this selection? out of something that I can't explain. And when you see the picture on site, 
It's fabulous. So I learn from them. I, I can't wait to see where they're going to put those lights. What kind of future plans do you have for the Invisible Collection? Plenty, plenty. Always on the move. The next one, the, the next move is we are opening a showroom in New York and it's uh, much awaited and uh, we are working on it and it will be a, a great step for us because the US are our first market. We, we've been there last summer in the Hamptons. We've been there almost every year. Uh, not physically, but our presence and uh, talking to our clients. Now we are going to, to put footsteps there. Anna Zowie, co-founder of the Invisible Collection there, in discussion with Monocle's Marcus Hippie. And that's all for this edition of Monocle on Saturday. Many thanks to our studio engineer, Nora Hall. I'm Georgina Godwin, and Monocle on Saturday will return next weekend. Thanks for listening.